Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, joined here by our host and star of this show, Jim Colonel. This is The Arms Race, episode 440 on the network. Before we bring Jim on, we got a packed show today. And this is the middle of a Tuesday triple header. We started off with Coach and Kernan, got the arms race followed up by the hot corner with Coach Sal. But before we get rolling, 67,000, thanks so much. Want to shout out to our jaw bats, our, our supporter, RBG at checkout. will get you percentage off their well-made maple bats or any of their apparel for that matter. Let's support jaw bats. We'll be announcing new partnerships at the end of the week with Bonet and with Kinetic Arm. Two kindred spirits in the business, um, really uh, charged up about what we're doing for baseball out there. And to millions handling our marketing at the end, uh, actually, probably today, our merchandise will be up in the store. Hoodies for men and women, shirts for men and women, and hats will be up there. Also, we're working on experiences so our audience can hire our, our hosts to, to do something in person or virtually. Instruction, uh, talking, lectures, whatever you need. We'll have a wide array of options for our audience out there to pay to have our guys talk to them individually. And then we will have uh, separate videos, uh, fun videos, like for holidays, for birthday wishes that people can hire. Uh, you know, Valentine's Day, I think everybody's going to want Sal Marinello, the hot corner, to wish their, the, them a happy Valentine's Day. So we will uh, we'll put that out bit by bit, but millions is it. Thanks for the two nominations for the awards, the Webbies and the Sports Podcast Group. Baseball Podcast of the Year. And with that, uh, I know we got a packed show today, Jim. We're going to bring on Jim Colonel, star of this show and the arms race. Jim, welcome back to your show. Thank you very much. Um, I appreciate that. And um, good luck on the nominations. I hope that uh, they're intelligent and vote you number one. <laughs> well, it's all of us. It's the whole network they voted as. We, we, en- we entered as one big podcast, all 14 shows. So, um, but, Hey, uh, Sister yeah. Sledge, as you said, Sister Sledge, we are family, right? That's right. It's, uh, they all kind of flow. There's a common thread. And that, for, the, for the audience members, I know you probably recognize that was Rocky music. We, we uh, lost uh, Apollo Creed, uh, you know, passed away in real life. Um, Carl Weathers uh, this past weekend. So uh, that was a little ode to Rocky right there. And I found I was watching Rocky 2. There's a scene in Rocky 2. He's trying to learn how to fight right handed. And uh, Mickey's got him in there with a with a calls him a quick Latin boxer. And it's when you stop the footage, it's Roberto Duran. I just saw that this morning. So oh, that's hot stuff. That's hot stuff. So I know we didn't, nobody tuned into the show to listen for my Rocky trivia. So I know um, we're going to talk a little bit about, to start anyway, with kinetic timing. Am I right in that? Yeah, I thought it would be um, really good. We've spoken about this over the last couple of podcasts. And I know that um, it's a little difficult to uh, do this just strictly from the audio. But I thought uh, to kind of put some of this in context, uh, I call it kinetic timing 101, or as the famous ex- uh, expression was years ago, kinetic timing for dummies. But I wanted to just give a brief explanation um, so the viewers out there, the listeners out there can maybe get a better understanding of what I've been talking about. And then um, and we'll go from there. So if you don't mind, I'll, I'll just kind of I'm going to I'm going to use very simple terms. And I'm going to use very simple logic. So for the listening audience, you do not uh, need a degree in kinesiology or biomechanics to understand what I'm going to talk about. Okay, so let's get started. We're, we're going <clears> to, <throat> so you understand what kinetic timing is and, and uh, kinetic timing, how you, how the energy moves through your body from your feet through your lower half to the upper half. And this is specifically throwing a baseball 
through your shoulder, arm to the elbow, to the baseball to release, right? That's kinetic timing. So I'm going to ask you to do this when you get a chance, right? Just, just stand with your feet together, get a ball and um, pretend that you're, you know, you're in a, in a um, balanced position or a stretch position where your, your hips are aligned to the target. Now I want you to throw the baseball and the only thing you can do is move your arm. That's the only thing you can do is move your arm to throw the ball. Okay. If I had seven guys, seven players, and I asked them to do the same drill as an aside, they all throw the ball different distance. Why? Because they have different arms and they have different DNA. So not to digress there, but we spoke about what I spoke to about before was that uh, the ability to throw a baseball or an object is a God-given talent. It's called DNA. Um, you can improve it. You can't create it. Uh, that's that's the bottom line. So anyway, that's the first drill to give you an idea of what what it feels like just to throw a baseball with just your arm. That's no kinetic timing whatsoever, or you're creating kinetic timing just with your arm. Okay. So now I'd like you to do the second drill. Step out maybe about a foot. So you're going to take your hip to the catcher. You're going to throw now. Now what you're going to do is you're going to rotate your hips a little bit, and you're going to throw the ball. Okay, now you got a little more kinetic timing. Now you're trying to create some energy with your lower half. Well, that's what this is all about. What it's all about is the ability to create as much energy with your lower half as possible. So that energy can be transferred to your upper half, through your shoulder, through your arm to release the baseball. That just gives you a brief understanding. So let's let's look at this now, right? This is really important because it goes back to we talked about my observations and my questions. The articles I've read are about several pitchers in the last couple months is that they have claimed that they have increased their upper half rotation. And by doing that, they've increased their velocity. So I'm going to give you another drill. I'm going to have you stand like you did before with your feet maybe a maybe a foot apart. And I want you to try to rotate your upper half, but not move your back hip. Okay? That's going to be impossible for you to do. So we talk about kinetic timing. What rotates your upper half is your ability to rotate your back hip and your lower half. You cannot rotate your upper half without moving your back hip. It's physically impossible. Okay, so that gets back to the comment I made about these pitchers who have said they've increased their upper half rotation and thus they subsequently have increased their velocity. I have photos of their motions prior to them making or supposedly thinking they made the adjustment versus after them making the adjustment. Their upper half rotation is exactly the same, exactly the same. What it comes down to is the timing of your upper half rotation with your back half movement to allow you to transfer the energy and to create maximum energy. That's what we're really talking about here. Because regardless of what you think you're doing, your hips are aligned. When your front foot hits as a pitcher, the most your back hip can rotate before you release the baseball is going to be 90 degrees. Now, many pitchers wind up facing first base and they rotate their hips, their front hip, another 90 degrees or 80 degrees, but that's after they release the baseball. 
So the question comes down to, if I'm looking to maximize my upper half rotation, it makes sense logically then to do that. I need to be able to maximize my back hip rotation because the greater the back hip rotation and my ability to take my back hip and rotate it aggressively to the plate, that means then I'm going to be able to rotate my upper half aggressively to the plate. Makes sense, right? So here's the caveat. Oh, sorry, Doug. Go ahead. You're probably going to get, how do you teach that? How do you, you know, how do you instruct that in the picture? I know it sounds very theory. Right. So that's a good, that's a good question, right? So, you know, and here's, here's, here's the way to answer that. Here's the way I'm going to answer that. And this is what I show pictures. I take pictures all the time. If I ask the viewing audience to step towards the plate and rotate their back hip, they're going to get an X amount of rotation on their back hip. If I ask pitchers to kick out and swing to the target, so when their front foot lands, their hip is facing first base, that means they've opened up their hips already anywhere from 35 to 55%. I ask them, do me a favor, throw the baseball each way. Number one, throw the baseball where your shoulder and your hip is pointed to the target to allow you to rotate your back hip with maximum energy and maximum rotation. How does it feel? Number two, swing out, open your hips up already. So your hips are 45% open, 50% open, already rotated. Now throw the baseball. How does it feel? Invariably, they say to me, it doesn't feel as good because I can't rotate my back hip as much. So logic dictates to me that if I can't rotate my back hip as much when I've opened up prematurely, that means then I can't transfer maximum energy to my upper half to go to my shoulder, to my elbow, to the baseball. Kinetic timing, right? How do we generate maximum energy from the ground up to transfer maximum energy to your upper half, to transfer maximum energy to your arm, to deliver the baseball, and getting back to the definition of last week, to minimize the forces on your shoulder and elbow? With, you know, with, we always talk about acceleration in today's pitching world, and I know we're talking about aggressively you know, uh, rotating the hip. What parts of the body or how important is deceleration as well? Where, does, where do kids have to be strong in order to feel comfortable accelerating aggressively with the hip, with the back hip? Well, you know, it gets back, you know, we, we talked about this when I work with young pitchers, and we'll talk about this in a little bit. <clears throat> the more balance and stability you can create through the motion, the more balance and stability you have to accelerate and deaccelerate through the baseball. I think that would just make common sense, right? If I can create balance and stability from the ground up when I'm athletic through my motion, that allows me, number one, to create the proper kinetic or the optimal kinetic timing to reduce the stresses on my shoulder and elbow per the definition. And number two is that it allows me to stay balanced through my follow through, it, you know, what, one thing I do is when I look at pitchers and I compare pitchers of, of years ago versus pitchers today. And I mentioned before that 99% of the pitchers who throw now, I'll just throw 99 out there, but it's greater than 
it's 99% of the pitchers that I evaluated, and I've evaluated close to 600 right now, um, all wind up finishing, falling off the rubber and finishing to first base. If you look at the, um, and I have pictures of Roger Clemens, Nolan Ryan, Whitey Ford, you name it. When they finished, they were square to the plate and their head was either over their outside leg or inside their outside leg, head over the chest. So they're balanced when they're following through. And that's how I teach. That's what I teach young pitchers. That's the goal and objective. And that shows me that if you finish that way, you have created balance and stability throughout your motion. You're also safer, too, because you have to be a fielder um, as well. Now, when you're talking falling off the first base, you're talking righties falling off the first, but lefties would fall off to third. Yeah, exactly. Their momentum's taking them that way. Exactly. Their momentum's taking that way. So, you know, you asked the question before, and, 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 and this is significant. When do I want to create the kinetic timing and when do I want to transfer? It comes down to this for me. When do I want to transfer all this energy I've created with my lower half to my upper half, right? Because I, I want to optimize the kinetic timing with the flow of energy from my feet to the baseball. Do I want to do it A, right? And I can show your listening audience, hundreds of photos where the pitcher has already rotated his lower half. So his belly button is facing the catcher and his arm is behind, collapsed behind his head. Okay. So that means to me, logically, that that pitcher has created a slingshot for their arm. That ball now has to travel anywhere from 130 to 160 degrees to release with no lower half energy to help deliver the baseball to minimize the force on their shoulder and their elbow per the definition I cited last week. Or two, do you want to get in a position where when your hips are rotating, your back hip is rotating to the target, your arm is going from early cocking to late cocking to release the baseball, So I am now using my lower half energy and transferring it to my upper half as my arm is going through acceleration to deacceleration. That's the timing issue, depending on what you're looking to create. Okay. And I can say this unequivocally that every young pitcher I have ever worked with who has made the adjustments to create the timing where their back hip is rotating, that means they're transferring energy to their upper half. At the same time, they're taking their arm from early cocking, which we talked about before, where the ball is pretty much anywhere from 1130 to 130, depending on whether you're righty or lefty, to late cocking where the ball and your elbow are extended and externally rotated through acceleration to deacceleration. And a hundred percent, a hundred percent. And to me, that just makes common sense, right? Um, do I want to create a slingshot for my arm when I have no lower half energy to deliver the baseball? Or do I want to create optimal timing when I can use the lower half energy I've created and transfer the maximum amount of energy to my upper half and the arm 
by timing my back my backside rotation with my arm delivery from acceleration to deacceleration. So it's in, in your your answer and probably this question all with your explanation, but you're, you're you're explaining to me anyway how you show it and teach it to to kids, but. Um, and in there, and I pick it out, but I want to see if you pull it out even further for the audience. How do you instruct adjustments with that? How do you, you know, how, how do you get right. that? Well, that, that's, that's a really good question. And it, and it gets into, um, and let me, let me just give you the caveat here. Um, that's a description I tried to give uh, audio from an audio perspective vocally. Um, for, for those who, who might be interested to see it visually, um, you could simply go to my website, theathleticpitcherseries.com, and I have two click on baseball. I have five click on baseballs on the home page. One is the tap goal, and one is why tap. And I think you'll get a pretty good understanding uh, without further delving into my website about what I've been speaking to and the success that I've seen working with youth pitchers. So I just want to I want to let your let the viewing audience know there that I know it's a little more difficult to understand when I'm speaking about it. And it's a lot easier when you have pictures, right? So just they, leave they can it. see what I asked. I mean, they, they heard it, but they can see it more clearly. Exactly. Excellent. So your question is, you know, it gets to what, what I was talking about. You know, what do I see when I, when I look at youth pitchers? Um, what I see is exactly the same in every youth pitcher. Uh, whether I videotape them over the last 12 years, I've worked with them. The last two or three, uh, two or three years, I've been doing motion studies where I take 15 to 20 pitchers and um, I videotape them and I take them through a process to help them develop a more athletic motion. So what I see is this. It's um, overstriding, um, gliding to the plate, swinging to the plate, um, severely collapsed back leg before movement to the plate, poor arm path, poor timing, poor finish. You name it. That's what I've seen across the board. Exactly the same with every youth pitcher, high school pitcher I've, I've seen, I've evaluated, I've worked with. Um, because getting back to the point, that's what they see, that's what they read, that's what they hear, that's what they're being taught. Okay, so what do we do? What do I do with a young pitcher in that situation? Well, number one is I <clears throat> show them the video and I break down the video into different segments. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was clearing my throat. Oh, to different seconds of throwing motion. And I show them their phase movements. I show them their timing. I look at three things when I look at a youth pitcher, high school pitcher. When his front foot lands, where's the baseball? How did he, how did he move his front side to get to his front foot landing? Number two, when, his, when the ball is an early cocking, how open is his front hip? And more importantly, as importantly, how open is his front shoulder? Okay, because we talked about reducing stress on the shoulder. You, you have a weak front side and early cocking and your shoulder's pointing if you're a pitcher and your shoulder's not pointing to the target, but it's pointing to 9, 30, 10 o'clock. You're putting a lot of stress on your shoulder, young man, without a doubt, without a doubt. You're not, you're not minimizing the stress on your shoulder. You're maximizing the stress on your shoulder. So that's the second thing I look at. And then I look at, finally, um, when their hips are fully rotate to the target, where is the baseball? Where is the baseball? Is it collapsed behind their head so they've created a slingshot for their arm? Or as they rotate your hip, their back hip to the target, is the baseball traveling from early cocking to late cocking to release? 
that's the timing issue, right? So those are those are the those are the things we discuss, and those are the things I point out and go. This is what I see. This is what I believe is causing your command issues. This is what I believe is causing you to um, not have a sharp breaking ba- uh, curveball or movement on your changeup. And this is also what's causing some of your arm pain and why you have discomfort when, discomfort when you throw and why you have tremendous discomfort after you throw. Okay. So once we get an understanding there, and then we, do, then we begin to do some drills. And this is really easy. Uh, I want to make sure that people understand this. When I've worked with a young pitcher, okay, they don't have to throw a baseball to make these adjustments. Okay, what I do is give them a roll of painter's tape, which costs about $1.98. I actually roll up a sock and give them a sock and go, these are the drills you're going to do in front of the mirror at home. Five, 10 minutes a day. Okay, you're going to learn to take your lower half to the target. And to do that, you're going to put blue painter's tape on your bedroom floor, on your rug. And you can actually watch yourself and you can look in the mirror and you can see how you learn how to go to the target. Take your front side to the target because you want to create a linear motion because that then creates torque. If you're throwing an object and you're creating a rotation with your lower half, followed by a rotation of your upper half, followed by a rotation of your arm, the only torque you're creating there is between your body and your arm that's collapsed behind your back. When you learn how to go to the plate in a linear motion and your front foot lands, now you've created torque because when you have a linear motion with your lower half, and as you begin to rotate your backside, you will have a rotational movement with your upper half. If you've ever tried to, um, as an analogy, try to, if you have two hoses that are stuck together over the winter time, and you take two wrenches and you put one on one side of the one hose and one on the other, you don't rotate those back, you don't rotate back those back, you don't rotate those in the same direction. You rotate one clockwise and one counterclockwise to create torque. Now, I realize that's not the greatest analogy, but it might give you an understanding of what torque is. So that's what we do. We, we learn how to go to the plate. Now, there's variance there. Nobody goes 100% to the plate. But what I look to eliminate is the pitcher who is kicking out, swinging violently to the plate, having his back leg collapse. So when his front foot lands, his hips are already op- open 40 to 55%. So getting back to my original statement about kinetic timing, if my front foot lands and I've already rotated my hips 40 to 55%, how much do I have left to rotate my backside to create energy and to transfer energy to the upper half? I only got about half, right? So that's the first thing we do. And I'll tell you what, the easiest way for me to learn to, to teach kids this, which is kind of interesting, is I, I've created what I call the butt, the butt kick drill. And it's really simple when I have them stand in a, in a, in a, in a you know, stretch position. And I tell them, I want you to do this. I wanted to, want you to take your front heel and I want you to touch your, back, your front cheek. And I want you to keep it there when you stride. 
Okay. And the reason I do that is I want them to take their foot out of the equation because it's very difficult. I'd say it's difficult. The challenging part with youth pitchers because of what they see, read, and hear and are being taught is that when they stride, to, they swing to the plate, their first movement is done with their foot. It's the foot kicking out. It's the knee driving to his chest, whatever the case may be. When you stride to the target, what I say to them is that you don't have a foot in this equation. You're taking your front side to the target. Your foot just hangs low and just goes along. So, so that drill forces them to keep their foot out of the equation. And it also forces them to learn how to go to the target. And they go, wow, that feels really good. And how does the rotation feel? Their response is, I'm rotating a lot better my backside, which makes sense, right? So that's what we do. We, 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 we work on going to the target down the line, right? Which is what a stride is. The kinetic definition says stride to the target. I have not yet read a, a, a definition of kinetic timing by any biomechanics study or any organization that says you swing to the target. No, you know, same thing with hitting. It's the same with hitting. It's uh, it's got to be directional. What about these? Now we're talking youth, but you get to these. We just sure. saw a big, a big signing the other day with Corbin Burns going to the Baltimore Orioles. What about with these? And you termed it in our show notes. These big horses. These are different bodies, different age, different mentality. Um, you know, how do we progress from what you said with the kinetic? With the kinetic chain to now with a guy like Corbin Burns or whoever you want to use. Yeah, I you know, we talked about this before about you know my concern about what youth pitchers are seeing and reading and what they're mimicking and copying. Uh, but I found this interesting with Corbin Burns only from the fact that uh, he was described as a horse. Um, I, I think the article I read, the the general manager um, talked about him being an absolute horse. So, um, you know, I always, I always look at comments and I just kind of, um, I, I wonder what that comment represents and based upon what I've seen and I, I do some research, right? So Corbin Burns has thrown in the last three years, 193, a high, a career high of 202 and then, uh, 167 in 2021. Okay. So that, that's, that's his heavy workload. That's, he's called an absolute horse today. Uh, he's referred to as an absolute horse. So um, just from perspective, right? Because I like to look at things with perspective. Here's Fergie Jenkins. Okay. I'm going to give you his innings seven years in a row. 289, 308, 311, 313, 325, 289, 271, 328, 270. Here's Steve Carlton, 273, 346, 293, 255, 283, 247, 251, 304, 295, 283. Okay. So my, I have no trouble at all uh, if, if they want to refer to Corbin Burns as an absolute horse. To me, that makes Fergie um, secretariat and Carlton war admiral. That's the only thing I can say. Uh, because once again, it's perspective. Um, not to belabor the point, but I always get back to everything I've read, everything I've read, 
and comments about pitchers and comments from front office people, pitchers are bigger and stronger. Okay. I haven't seen anything that tells me pitchers are bigger and stronger. Now, I'm not saying they're not, but I don't know what they're, I don't know what all those people are basing it on to say pitches are bigger and stronger. Because let me add one caveat here. We've talked about this before, which is really a big bone of contention for me. Okay. Really big bone of contention. Corbin Burns throws 95 to 96. Okay. Got it. He's measured out of the hand today. If he was measured with the same gun, whether it was the speed gun or the Decatur gun, I'm not going to get into, you know, the, the nitpicky there, but we all know that 40 years ago, we've talked about this and people can do the research that those earlier guns measured when the ball was closer to the plate, some five feet in front, some 10 feet in front. Okay. The scientific evidence says seven to 9% out of the hand versus crossing the plate. I'll just use a very conservative 5%. If the gun that was used to clock Fergie and Carlton was used today to clock Corbin Burns, he'd be 90-91. Okay? Fergie was through 93-94. Carlton threw 95-96. You can check the records. I've Googled it. Plus or minus. So that tells me that there's an inconsistency there in the correlation in the statements that are being made. Okay? And I'm not saying Corbin Burns isn't a Cy Young Award winner. This has nothing to do with Corbin Burns' ability, his attitude, his approach to the game. This has to do with what people are speaking about when they talk about the game and how it impacts youth pitchers, what they see, what they read, what they hear. I'll give you one here. This is a real kicker for me. Jim Cotta mentioned this. I didn't realize it. Mickey Lowich in 1971 through 376 innings. I researched Mickey Lois, right? And I saw a couple of quotes that said, Lowlich had an overpowering four-seamer that went up and in on batters, whose fastball was once clocked at 96, 1971. Through most of his career, Lowlich was a two-pitch pitcher. He threw his fastball in the low to mid-90s and relied on a curveball to set it up. So, once again, all I have is questions. If we're talking about pitchers like Corbin Burns being absolute horses today because they're throwing 193, 200, 210 innings, whatever that number is, that's fine. That's fine. How do, how do we reconcile that, okay, with a Mickey Lowich or, as I mentioned, a Fergie or a Carlton? And Mickey Lowe threw three, 376 innings, and I think it was 1971 or 1972. And he threw back then in the mid-90s. So his fastball had more gas when he pitched than Corbin Burns' fastball has now. I would think that would be considered a scientific fact. Let me add this, right? I did some research into innings pitched. Robin Roberts, 1953, threw 346 innings. I checked and said, how hard did Robin Roberts throw? His fastball was somewhere between 95 to 96. That's what it was quoted as. Steve Carlton in 1972, that year he won half of the games for the Philadelphia Phillies, threw 346 innings. 
called and was known to throw 95-96. Nolan Ryan in 1974 threw 332 innings. I would say no one was probably known to be 96 to 98. Okay, so if 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 our if the pitchers today are bigger and stronger, but they're throwing 180 to 220 innings, what would you what would you classify Robin Roberts, Steve Carlton, Nolan Ryan, Mickey Lowage, and the rest of the crew? I don't even. I, I think Secretariat would be undervaluing and uh, would be an insult to them, to be honest with you. <laughs> I just, I don't, I don't understand it, Dave. I don't understand it. I can't figure it out. Like I said, just a lot of questions I have. On mute there. So I was wondering where you were going with that when I saw it in the show notes with him as a horse, but it makes more sense now. What about some of these pitchers you identified with particular teams? Last week you talked about, you know, Paxton and a simple question you'd ask him is let's have a catch and that's where you start evaluating people with the simple you know let's play yeah catch. there were there were a couple there were a couple pitchers i looked at and 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 this is once again just based on based on um articles based on comments uh based on this emphasis on velocity uh and everybody's saying they're getting injured because they they're throwing harder right and we don't need to belabor that point but uh, a couple articles i saw this week that i was kind of curious about was, um, as an example, James Paxson, where I saw that the Dodgers reworked his contract due to an unspecified health issue. Okay. So I, I looked at Paxton and I kind of researched this. I was curious. It's okay. What, what, what's, what's been his injury history? 2014 lat, 2017 left pectoral, 2020 left flexor tendon, 2021 Tommy John surgery, 2022 lat tear. And I then I looked at his velocity in those years, 94, 95. Okay. Okay, fine. But once again, if he was clocked with a gun that was used in 1978 to 82, whatever that range is, he'd be throwing 89 to 90. Um, I don't think anybody would consider that a high octane, right? So well, I always like to see what people are saying. So when he went under when he went underwent Tommy John surgery. His manager, Scott Cervais, I'm, I'm sorry, I think that's the pronunciation, said he's got a lot of work ahead of him. But if I know Pax, he'll take the right attitude and go forward and come back, hopefully stronger than ever. Okay. Alex Cora, after his injury, said it's disappointing. But like I've always said in these cases, it's more about the person, which is true. I, I understand that. I can't even imagine just going through this process and this is what happens. So, once again, questions, right? I said, okay, I'm going to take a look at Mr. Paxson's throwing motion with the Mariners, with the Yankees, and the Red Sox over the course of eight years, over the course of these injuries. His throwing motion is identical, absolutely identical, has horrific lower half ball timing. Okay. And once again, I refer to the definition last week where the goal was to create optimal timing that minimizes the force on the arm, shoulder, and elbow. When I look at a motion like James Paxton's, I go, that motion maximizes the force on his shoulder and his elbow because of his lower half timing. So we mentioned this last week, and I continue to mention this, that the only thing that tells me is that number one, they're, they're hanging their hat, they're blaming injuries on velocity. 
Number two, when they look at somebody like James Paxton, who played for three different teams, they don't feel that that throwing motion is placing any increased stress on his shoulder, arm, lat. And it's not the reason why, or it's not a contributing factor to why he's gotten injured. And, and I'll get back to the quote that I was told by several, several people that I've contacted and spoken about this. And their response is, hey, they're all, they're all chasing velocity. It's all about velocity. I get, I get that. I'm not stupid. I recognize that. But here's my question, though. What velocity are they chasing? If Paxton, over the last seven years, his velocity was anywhere from 95, 96, and I, those are the th- averages. I get these averages from Baseball Savant. I'm not making this up. It's on MLB Savant. If that correlates to 40 years ago of being 89, 90, is there really velocity there? It, could that be what's causing his injury? Could that be the significant factor of why James Paxton has had lat injuries, pectoral mysteries, a lat tear, and Tommy John surgery and flexor tension injuries? That's my question. I don't believe it is. I believe that, as I said before, for a lot of these pitchers, it's how they're throwing the baseball. Now, here's, here's once again, to tie it back, right? If I'm a youth pitcher, and I read about James Paxton, or I read about any of these pitchers, and all they talk about is his velocity, and all they talk about his ability to rehab the process, but yet part of that process is not identifying how his throwing motion is increasing the forces on his shoulder, elbow, and lat. If I'm 17 years old going, hey, my throwing motion's great. My th- what are the experts are saying? They're saying the throwing motion has nothing to do with why they're getting hurt. So I'm just going to continue what I'm going to do, and I'm going to throw my weighted balls, and I'm going to throw my long toss program, and I'm going to do whatever I have to do because I need to get to 100. Now, nobody's telling the high school kid that 100 is really 93 40 years ago. That's my problem. That's my concern. And that's, to me, how this all ties in. Yeah. Well, it goes back to our sports nowadays. Uh, I'm, I'm reading on social media about, and this is a different sport, but it's the same line through what we're talking about. College football, they were talking about Washington having their players pirated. They didn't have a head coach. Um, they're a successful program without a conference, really. They're in the, they're in the Pac-2 right now. There's two teams in the Pac-12. It shows a lack of commitment on part of the university. People are outraged that players are leaving for money. But when we look back to like you're, you're describing here where kids are chasing this individual number, whether it's velocity or spin rate, our youth sports has, has turned into a series of independent contractors. So I laugh when, when these kids are when they wake up in the morning and they're chasing all these individual things, going to individual trainers, going to individual lessons, um, and they're changing teams where there's nothing team anymore to, uh, because they want more individual accolades or to play a better spot or to hit in a different uh, spot in the order, pitch more innings, whatever it may be. And then we're outraged when we see them jumping ship for millions of dollars at the college level. It's like they're supposed to have this uh, 
this miraculous collective moralism because we say so. But it's being it's being reinforced, and, and now we're bringing it back to pitching with little things like you're talking about now. And they're chased. They're 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 running the wrong race. They oh really yeah, are. yeah, you know, and, and and that's a really good point. You 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 know, if you do if you if you're acting a certain way, or you're you're looking to um, gain some level of performance through a certain process. Okay, what you just spoke about. You're not going. That's not going to change when you're 18, 19, or 20. It may for some people if the light bulb goes on, but it's just going to be exacerbated because the opportunities and the money are even greater, right? So how do you, how do you build this foundation where at a younger age they understand what the process is and how to build the foundation so they're not chasing X, Y, and Z, jumping from team to team better coach. He signed more players. This guy got more people drafted. Um, people, you know, guys that pitch for him can throw 93. I'm only at 88. I got to go play for this guy. The whole Magilla. I mean, it's crazy, but to your point, right? So yeah. here's, here's what I found interesting, right? And I, as I was researching these pitchers and I go to different articles and I like to look at articles, what people are saying. So when they talk about velocity, right? Velocity is king. A hundred mile an hour fastball is no longer a special event. Okay, that was the title. That was the first line. Well, yeah, it, it shouldn't be a special event because it's really 94. Okay. But that's besides the point. So this is what I found interesting, right? I read a quote by, I think it was Farhan Zadi, the president of baseball operations for the San Francisco Giants. And he, I guess he was quoted in one of these articles. He noted, he said, how alarmingly, he noted and said, how alarmingly easy it is for big league hitters to square up on a 100-mile-an-hour fastball if it's not located well. Hitting is largely about rhythm and timing. A hitter's timing has evolved to where it's not an issue to catch up to that kind of velocity. So I'm not going to speak to that because I'm not in Mr. Zadi's position to have examined and, 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 and looked at the game from his perspective. But I will make a comment about his statement. Hitting is largely about rhythm and timing. And so timing, I underscore timing, right? So his next comment was, people might need to start thinking more about how to disrupt the hitter's timing and not just continue on this path to optimizing pitch characteristics in terms of, of velocity. So here's the president of baseball operations for the San Francisco Giants making that statement. Might have been a one-off statement. I don't know, but I read about it um, in, in an article. And we've talked about this before. If the issue for hitting is rhythm and timing, as a pitcher, why wouldn't your number one goal B, to upset a hitter's timing. Getting back to what I've seen with high school and youth pitchers, their pitch development is as follows. Fastball, curveball, slider, you name any other pitch, and if I put a gun to their head, they'll begin to learn how to to throw a changeup. Yeah. Question. I don't understand that at any level, high school, college, 
minor league, major league. Don't understand that. Don't understand that. I'm, ex- I'm excited to see Mr. Uh, Far- Farid, if that's how you pronounce his name, with the Giants to start paying his pitchers accordingly now instead of paying them for miles per hour and spin rate um, and paying them when they're injured, paying them for the practical things he mentioned, getting hitters outs, because that's basically what he was alluding to. So we'd, we'd like to – love to take a look at his economics next time around and see if he's signing pitchers based on that, uh, you know, that epiphany he had that we both look at and say, like, no kidding. <laughs> well, no here's, here's what I think is pretty funny, right? Just once again, logically, right? Pitching. If somebody said to you or asked you, what is pitching? What is the goal of the pitcher? My response would be to get the batter out. To get the batter out with as few pitches as possible. That would be a caveat. That would be my butt, okay? When did then pitching become the goal of the pitcher to see how hard you could throw. I just, right? So so let me ask, let me add with this, which I thought was fascinating. The fastball is the most stressful pitch, said former Dodger athletic trainer Stan Conti, who now runs an injury analytics firm. There's no question about that. Okay. I'll I'll take that, I'll take that uh, statement as gospel truth. So my question. If the fastball is the most stressful pitch, why isn't the goal of every pitcher to create a throwing motion which minimizes the stress on his shoulder, elbow, and arm? And, and let me add this because it's really important, right? Um, I talked about all the pitchers that I've worked with and we talked about, you know, we started talking about teaching and what I'm looking for. Let me, let me just give you a brief summary of the results, okay? Just a brief summary. All these are on my website in, in full detail. But here's Gavin Jay, an 18-year-old, okay, who I work with for a couple of weeks, a month in the summer. I definitely feel more of a pop and velocity on my fastball. My arm definitely feels better. I'm definitely seeing a ton of improvement with my fastball and my command of pitches. My command of pitches. Another, Charlie S., 17-year-old high school pitcher. In a short period of time, we've been working together. In the games I have pitched, I have better command. I've gained some velocity. I have a better sharp break with my curveball. Here's, here's Andrew's catcher. I saw more, more movement in his breaking ball and more command and confidence in his changeup. His overall command improved. He was hitting his spots better towards the end of the summer. He improved a lot. Okay? Two, quick, two, two more, ones, just, just to emphasize this. Ryan B., a 17-year-old pitcher. Before working with you, my arm and shoulder felt sore after pitching, and it took three to four days to recover. Since we've been working, this is cut down to about one to two days. My arm does not feel sore at all. I have much better command. My curveball has seen a big improvement, a sharper break. My max velocity has increased three miles per hour since I started working with you. And I will end with this last one. 22-year-old college pitcher, 20-year-old college pitcher. My command has improved. My strike ratio has gone up. 
My arm wasn't nearly as sore as it used to be when I finished pitching. My arm recovered much quicker and was ready to use earlier than before. After making the adjustments to become more athletic and balanced, my throwing motion feels smoother. I am throwing harder. And the reason I bring that up is this. I've heard from everybody involved in the game, used to be associated with the game. Their response to me is definitively, nobody wants to sacrifice arm health. Nobody wants to sacrifice velocity for arm health. I've heard this over and over. Let me repeat this. Nobody wants to sacrifice velocity for arm health. There was no high school pitcher I've worked with. And I say high school because if they're 12 and 13 years old, they're not physically developed. There was no high school pitcher I have ever worked with in the last 15 years who has made these adjustments to become more balanced, to become more athletic, to utilize their lower half with optimal timing, who has lost velocity. They have gained velocity, two, three, four miles an hour. So I don't understand that comment from the experts who say that the way they throw the baseball is the way they have to throw the baseball to gain max velocity. And they don't want to sacrifice that. Once again, they don't want to change. I don't care. But the important point for me is that what 17-year-olds read, see, hear, what they're being taught, why they need to throw weighted baseballs, why they need to long toss three times a week. That's what concerns me. And that's why we talk about this. And that's why I bring these up as examples. I'm not telling you, I'm not, I'm not touting my success to show or talk to anybody and tell them how, how smart I am, how great of a coach I am. That's irrelevant. I'm saying that the pitchers I have worked with who have made these adjustments and they have told me the adjustments are not difficult. If they have increased their velocity and they have eliminated and alleviated their arm pain, what works for an 18 year old who throws 86 doesn't work for a 28 year old who throws 96. Once again, don't care if they don't want to change, but I'm concerned that because of, what they see and what they're being taught, they don't want to change either. And I'll leave you with this on this topic, and I don't want to belabor this point. I'll give you an example. We talked about starting at the youth level. <laughs> I'll show you how difficult it is. I presented a program, and this is after I work with people and they've seen the results. I went back to the high school, and this is the program I presented. I was going to give them free lessons for the summer. I was going to hook them up as part of the program with a professional strength and conditioning coach. We were going to work together in a session so the strength and conditioning coach could evaluate their, their athletic ability, their balance and stability and strength, and could develop and give them a weight training program. I was going to pay for that program. And then we were going to have follow-up lessons. I had to beg, and I don't want to use the word beg, but the p coach that I presented this to had to beg individuals to 
to sign up for this program. After I made several presentations, after I brought in people who I work with that could attest to the success of making these adjustments. There were 10 pitchers that I presented this to. Two signed up. The other eight basically said, no, thank you. I have my own pitching coaches. I know what I'm doing. Now, I didn't find it insulting. I didn't mind. If there was only, if one signed up, I would have worked with him. And the two, it was great. So when, when I talk about what they see, read, and hear, and what they're being taught, I've seen this firsthand for the last 15 years because I've dealt with this, okay? When I was coaching, and the reason I stopped coaching was that I got tired of playing Groundhog Day. I'd work with pitchers. They'd be really successful. They started improving. They came back the next year. It was like we never worked because they went to their instructors, and they looked like a different pitcher. And I said, after a while, I go, I'm done. I'm wasting my time here. I'm wasting my time. I can't, I can't be any more succinct than that as far as my experience and my concern with what I've seen and the results I've seen by pitchers who are willing to work to make these adjustments. And as I said, in front of a mirror throwing a sock, not throwing 60 feet at 95 miles an hour. Yeah. Well, baseball definitely needs a paradigm shift, specifically pitching, and that's why we're we're doing this here. I think you gave the audience an awful lot to to lock in on today, um, and I do encourage them to go to your website and check out some of the videos we talked early. You, I, and I and I, I'm always interested in the whole podcast, but you you quite often intrigue me at the end when you talk about books that you you're reading. I saw I saw I, I peeked at the show notes. I try not to look at that part, but I got a little uh, curious today and. It's, it's, it, it, my curiosity, ironically, was is I guess kind of a theme for the books that you're you're you're, you're promoting today. Yeah, I I, um, I um, you know I read a lot of different genres, um, and uh, this one um, is is spy thrillers, um, and I've read some great ones. There's an author, Ben McIntyre, who everything he's written I have read, um, but there's three uh, you know, and these are nonfiction. There's too many really good spy thrillers and espionage books that are nonfiction. You don't need to read the John LeCars anymore. Uh, not that he's not a talented writer. Um, but the first one is Spy and a Traitor uh, by Ben McIntyre, who is, it's, a, it's a story about this Russian agent who um, turned double agent uh, during the Cold War. Absolutely fascinating story. Uh, I think they made a Netflix special on it, uh, which was good, but the book was obviously, the book is always much better. Uh, but Spy and the Traitor, um, the next one is the taking of K-129. Uh, back in the back in the 60s during the Cold War, a Russian submarine um, had uh, sank. And there was a cat and mouse game between the Americans and the Russians to who was going to get the uh, who's going to be able to rescue the ship first. Uh, it was down three or four miles. And it's a fascinating story about how the CIA got involved with Howard Hughes and other companies to be able to uh, develop the technology to be able to go down four miles in the ocean and, and, and try to retrieve this Russian submarine um, without the Russians understanding and knowing that we had found it. Um, and the last one is um, uh, Cold War uh, t Tunnel 29. Uh, great story uh, about these groups of individuals who are digging tunnels to rescue um, people from East Germany uh, once the Berlin Wall went up. 
Um, so anyway, if, if for, for, for readers out there who want to get away from sports and read some fascinating stories about history, um, these are three spy thrillers, espionage thrillers that I think are really, uh, really excellent reads. I would say I, I love Cold War history. And uh, so I've, I've actually wrote those down. One of my favorite podcasts to listen to is called True Spies. And I'm not, I don't get into the the fictional stuff, although my favorite show it's over now is The Blacklist, which was about Cold War spy. But um, True Spies, I, I, I really enjoyed it. Tell stories about real life uh, espionage. And uh, for some reason, I, I don't know if that's more tells you more about my uh, my makeup or what, but. Well, it's good to read a variety of books. I mean, you know, a, cro- a cross section, right? So uh, anyway, those are, I, I thought I would touch on the, uh, I went to my library and the spy thrillers and the espionage, but those are the three that I thought that your uh, the listening audience might find interesting if they do like that, reading that genre. Well, baseball doesn't turn the corner with pitching. Maybe we found our next calling for a podcast. We can do. Oh, hey, I, I, that's fine with me. We'll, we, we can talk books for the next uh, six months. I have a, several hundred on my house. Um, but, uh, you know, in the meantime, you know, maybe we can, uh, you know, reach one or two people that uh, might want to uh, take a look at uh, what we've been talking about and see that it, uh, you know, it, it's, it's going to help their development. Right. So that's what we can do one, you know, one at a time. Right. <laughs> that's it and 67,000 tune in every every week every show we appreciate that and we mentioned pre-show and, and I'll mention it again we we've got some great partners we're going to give more details about it by the end of the week but expect to hear more about the kinetic arm and bonnet um, we're going to be preparing to do a major conference at the end of the year but from now until then we're going to do some mini stuff virtually uh, our help with our marketing help with millions is going to help us do some things with our merchandise and have some experience and, and some short videos by our podcast host so you can reach out to them. You can ask them a question or a thought and they can get back to you on video personally. So it's, it'll be it'll be uh, a way that you can enjoy your podcast host in between weekly podcasts. Congratulations to all of our podcast hosts on the awards with the podcast sports group and the Webbies uh, were nominated, didn't win yet, I guess. But you know, I'm, I'm excited to be nominated for those. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, Jaw Bats. RVG at checkout, great maple wood, maple bat. Tanner's using the M110 model, both lefty and righty. And to today's lineup, now we finish with episode or uh, podcast number two. We got Sal Marinella with the hot corner hitting third today. So a lot of great content, uh, an eclectic collection of podcasts today. Very different, uh, as you said, genres with the book. Same thing with the podcast, but a thread through all of it. Um, and we're trying to reach you guys out there. So Jim, thanks so much for a great show today with the arms race. We appreciate well, it. I appreciate it. And, and, and next week we'll get into this. We, we didn't get to it, but, um, I mentioned to you that, um, I have researchers that helped me out and, and since 2019, there've been 441 Tommy John surgeries between major league and minor league pitchers. And I have re I have, uh, researchers, um, doing the research to find out, each of the pitches, what their average fastball velocity was. And, and I have one year. So by next week, I'll have all five years. And uh, once again, we'll talk about, uh, is it velocity that's causing these injuries or is it something else? Uh, but I think the, the way to look at that is number one is um, look and see exactly how hard they're throwing. And if we're going to compare them to the pitchers of 40 years ago, let's compare apples to apples and then we can talk about injuries. So We'll talk about that down the road. Sounds good. And every parent out there that just heard that number, 441, 
minor league and major league pitchers. Please don't utter the phrase out loud or to yourself. Well, not my son. You're not the exception to the rule. This is hitting everybody. So um, we appreciate what you bring, the awareness you bring, Jim, and the research and the facts. And uh, we look forward to those those things next week with the arms race. Episode 440 in the books. Thanks, Jim. I appreciate it. It was fun. (laughs) 